First Sergeant Bill Dalton has heard all the stories and more. But stories aren't going to solve this case. There have been stories for 41 years. If this case is going to be solved, Dalton would have to take a brand new approach and tackle this case in a way that hasn't been done by anyone before him. This is Red Ball. Soldier, keep on marching on Head down till the work is done Waiting on that morning sun Soldier, keep on marching on Dalton has told me that even over 41 years later, the tips still consistently come in. It's a testament to how much people still care about Ruth Shelton, Danny Davis, Jane Freet, and Mark Flemons. A testament to how much people still care about the community. But Dalton needs more than stories and theories. After the press conference last year, there was an influx of tips. Some reiterated stories that have been around for decades, some were new, and Sergeant Dalton had to run down all of them. Dalton wants to see this case solved, yes, but he has another goal. He wants to get this case in a better place than when he got it a year ago. I mentioned in an earlier episode, this is a massive case. Thousands upon thousands of pages of reports and notes, hundreds of hours of audio tape, It took years for people to wrap their heads around it, and I'm not sure one brain can even retain all of the information, much less make the necessary connections to solve a case, which is why Dalton is making it his mission to finally bring this decades-old case into present day by digitizing and cataloging the entire thing. He started this process a year ago by having one of his officers who was assigned to desk duty because of an injury start scanning in every page. One by one by one by one. It's a slow and grueling process, not quite the glamour and excitement I imagined when I pictured what reinvestigating a cold case looked like, but it has to be done. At last year's press conference, the police announced that they were acquiring new AI software that could assist in large investigations like this. It's quite incredible to hear it described by them. Basically, it scans every word on every document, and it tries to draw connections between people and places that might have been hard to see looking at it page by page. Like a digital string board, basically, but with the ability to make connections that you or I never could. This thing even goes out onto the internet and pulls data from news articles or social media, cross-referencing information, and hopefully making connections police were unable to before. It's a wonderful new tool, but your case has to be digital for it to work. 
So one year later, they're still scanning, one by one by one. And while that's being done, First Sergeant Dalton, with the help from an analyst, has started cataloging information by hand, going through each binder on nights, weekends, and holidays. Together, they write down every name in the case file to see how many people they're really dealing with. Each person is cataloged with relevant information. What binder number did they show up in? On what pages? Were they mentioned by someone else or were they interviewed directly? How are they connected to the victims? How are they connected to other people that pop up? Thousand lines. And he isn't even halfway through the binders and tip cards yet. Five thousand people. I ask him why he thinks this is so important. And he says it's for the next guy, but he needs it too. He says, I can't go talk to witnesses or tipsters and accurately gauge their story without this. They could tell me something, truth or lie, but if I can't cross-reference their story with evidence or other people's stories, they could be feeding me BS and I'd never know. Cataloging the binders or reports is what he's working on now, but a year ago, before the reports, Dalton's number one priority was the evidence logs. Theories are great, witness statements are fine, but 41 years later, we need more than that. We need physical evidence. You know, and everybody wants to talk theories on this. You know, well, I mean, I can come up with 100 theories on this, you know, but I still need the piece of evidence that says suspect was at the location. I need that definitive piece of evidence that couldn't have gotten there any other way. That's why the focus is the lab, because my witnesses aren't here. The way Dalton focuses on the lab is by, surprise, surprise, cataloging all of the evidence logs he had, comparing what he has against what the lab had. And this is where him being the planning details guy comes in handy. Because I seen her binder and it's that thick. So, Paulie, my binder's not that thick. Yeah, when what it are comes we to missing? evidence, what, what am I missing? I say, can you send me? So she went through and scanned everything that's inside her binder. You're talking 112 pages here. Oh. And this is just... This Dalton is compiled all of those loose reports into one spreadsheet that he says now accurately displays every single item of physical evidence they have in this case. It was no easy task, but it was the easy part. Now he had to find all of the corresponding reports. Okay, Item number one was found here in relation to the crime scene. Was it sent for testing? What were the results that came back? Some say inconclusive. What does that inconclusive actually mean? Because it's lab speak and it could mean a range of things if you talk to a technician. What's left that hasn't been tested? And what has the potential for retesting? You guys, before working with Dalton, I was like, it's 2019. We're testing everything. Just like Oprah. That's getting tested. That's getting tested. That's getting tested. It's all getting tested. <laughs> and you guys, I would ruin every case. So you're welcome for just being a podcaster. It turns out you can't just run in and test anything and everything. It's so much more complicated than that. Say, for example, you have a coffee mug in evidence. Okay, first, like, where was this in relation to the case? If it's found in a dumpster at the victim's apartment complex and they were just collecting everything, it might not be super useful, like not your first priority. It could have nothing to do with the case. But say it's found sitting across from the victim at a table and we know it wasn't the victim's. Okay, way better chance that our killer could have used it. 
So now you've decided that we want to test it, but what do you want to test it for? Fingerprints? DNA? Because you can't necessarily have both. If our sample area is small, you have to choose. So this is when you go to the lab. They tell you, okay, if we try and pull fingerprints, we think we have about a 90% chance of pulling a good one. But with fingerprints, you have to hope your perp is already in a system somewhere or you have a suspect to compare it to. And if you test for fingerprints, then the testing methods could destroy any DNA evidence. So then you think, well, DNA has really advanced. Let's just test for that. But it's still not as simple as you think when you talk to the lab. So, um, you know, if we want to test a coffee mug to find out, okay, on a coffee mug, we have about a 30% chance of being able to pull DNA off of a coffee mug. So do you want us to test that coffee mug for it? But in doing so, we're going to destroy any possibility of future tests. Do you want to run that? Oh, and by the way, if the lab tells you you have a 30% chance, that's just 30% on one kind of testing. You can't use the same test to pull DNA and put it into CODIS as you would to pull DNA for, say, genealogy testing. And you guys, don't even get me started on pulling DNA from hair. That's a whole nother beast. So do you take that 30% chance knowing that you have one shot and one shot only? Once your sample is used, it can never be used again. Or do you wait a few years until technology is even better? The lab provides all of this data, and it's up to the investigator to decide. I recently spoke with the sister of a woman who was murdered decades ago. It's completely unrelated to this case, but she brought up an interesting point. She asked, why isn't it the family's decision? And I see both sides. The police are responsible for building a case that can be taken to trial. They want the best bet possible. But sometimes the idea of waiting a few more years is too painful to even comprehend when a case is already decades old. I don't think there's a right or a wrong answer. Just a lot of complicated questions we ask of an imperfect system. So Dalton catalogs all of the evidence, item by item, to decide what his options are. It's a grueling task that took him months. But it's a task that would prove to pay off. Over the last year, Dalton's cataloging has been halted many times. Sometimes it's because of active cases. Once he was planning to take three days of PTO to completely focus on the Burger Chef case, but a shooting in the city derailed his plans. Stuff like this happens all the time. Other times he was derailed because of me and this podcast. The longer our project went on, the more my profile grew, the more people took notice and got upset. Days when Dalton should have been working on active cases or cold ones like this, he spent dealing with the politics of his job. People started personally attacking me as well, coming at me from every direction. They were pissed that the police were using my platform to tell their story. And it was hard for me to understand why. All I wanted to do was help. I wanted to give the police a controlled outlet to tell the victim's story and to disseminate information to the public without fear that I was looking for a scoop or would do something that would irrevocably harm the investigation. I wanted to give them more than a soundbite on the news that they had no control over. 
We live in a world where everyone is looking for the scoop, that thing that will give them clicks with no regard to how the information or names that they're releasing could hurt the case forever. After the scoop's been got, they walk away and leave police in the wake to explain to the family why justice may be even harder to get now because of information that's been released. I came in wanting to help the Indiana State Police, but I made their lives a whole hell of a lot harder. Many of the departments I was supposed to interview for this show backed out. They saw the shit that Dalton was walking through and they didn't want to step in it too. And I don't blame them. I get why so often police don't try new things. They aren't afraid of change and they're not trying to cover things up. New things open them up to a world of shit. And if your eyeballs deepen it, the public doesn't care. They still expect you to solve cases and protect the public. So there isn't a whole lot of winning. So often, they just decide to choose what's best for the case and not what makes them the most popular. But they are trying. Dalton was less surprised by all of this than me. He reminds me constantly of what he told me day one. Big cases, big problems. He fights through the big problems because he really does love the work. If all I had to worry about was just police stuff, this job would be the best job in the world. Over the past year, when Dalton has been able to focus on the police stuff, his focus has been looking at this case in a new light and trying new things. Aside from podcasting, one of the other new things was bringing in two crime assessment experts to consult on this case. There's this organization called the Sherry Black Foundation that puts on a crime assessment training course for different law enforcement agencies across the country. It's a three-day training course taught by two internationally recognized experts, Patrick Zerpoli and Richard Walter. Zerpoli retired from the Pennsylvania State Police, where he was the supervisor for the Criminal Investigations Assessment Unit. And Walter spent most of his professional career as a prison psychologist, and he was one of the founding members of the VDOC Society. Now, these guys know their stuff. They have a way of getting in the minds of perpetrators that is uncanny and frankly a little creepy. Just one example of this is the John List case. John List was a man who in the 70s murdered his entire family and went on the run. Years later, when America's Most Wanted featured the case, one of the VDOC members created a clay bust of what John List would look like at the time in hopes that people would recognize him. It was Richard Walter who insisted on adding the glasses to the bust. He said John List would most certainly be wearing a pair just like this. When they captured John List, it was remarkable exactly the same pair of glasses. So when Zerpoli and Walter go around and do these three-day training courses, they start on a Monday and end on a Wednesday. They save the last two days of the week to review actual cases with departments in attendance. They say, listen, we're here. Use us while you got us. And in early October of this year, they were here, here, in Indianapolis. And First Sergeant Dalton attended the training course with some of his investigative team. He decided to take them up on their offer and bring them in to consult on the Burger Chef case. I followed up with Dalton after their meeting and asked him if it was helpful. Incredibly, he said. Their insights were completely changing the suspect profile that had been assumed by so many people before. 
And everything they were saying was in line with the new tips Dalton was getting and new information that he was finding as he cataloged the evidence in this case. When I asked him what was next, Dalton said, I think we have an ending for your show. Ashley, I'd like everyone listening to this podcast to understand that this case is old, but it is not cold. Like we discussed at last year's news conference, we decided to take a fresh look into this investigation. We decided not to come in with any preconceived notions, suspects, or theories. It is our belief this has helped us look at this evidence and the facts surrounding the investigation in a neutral light. It is because of this decision we believe we're going in a completely new direction in this investigation. There are many facts surrounding this case we are not prepared to release at this time in fear of jeopardizing the investigation. However, we are prepared to release the following. We do not believe the killers were from Speedway, Indiana in 1978. We believe they resided outside of that area. Additionally, we have new evidentiary possibilities that we plan to explore we believe could link the killer directly to the crime. Now I'd like to talk directly to those killers who were involved in the killing of Mark, Ruth, Jane, and Daniel. We're not stopping. We're going to find you. With the help of today's advancements in technology, it is not if, but rather when we come to get you. The families of Mark, Ruth, Jane, and Daniel have been in a living hell for the last 41 years since they were brutally taken from their loved ones. Your selfish acts of taking these four lives to protect yourself, no doubt in my mind, weighs heavy on your soul and of the souls of those you told. It is time to bring closure to this crime. After Dalton read me that official statement, I had to ask, what is this evidence? He wouldn't tell me much. He said there were a few items that with today's new technology are very promising. But, he says, the killer or killers messed up. They left something at the crime scene, something that Dalton thinks can be connected back to them. He refers to it as item 8063. He reiterates there's more, but it's item 8063 that he thinks will be the killer's undoing. Soldier, keep on marching on. At the press conference held one year ago, Ruth Shelton's sister got up and said something I think about every day. She told everyone there, these aren't just victims. That was her sister. It's an important point to remember. This isn't just the Burger Chef murders. It's Ruth Shelton's story, Danny Davis's story, Mark Fleming's story, and Jane Freed's story. 
It's something First Sergeant Dalton remembers daily. All four of their pictures are tacked to the bottom of his bulletin board right above his computer, and he sees them a hundred times a day. And he's reminded who he's doing all of this for. We can't undo what's been done, but First Sergeant Dalton and the Indiana State Police are committed to not compounding tragedy by letting their killers continue to walk free. We are donating a portion of all of our ad sales from these episodes to Crime Stoppers of Central Indiana. If you know anything, First Sergeant Bill Dalton and the Indiana State Police ask that you call Crime Stoppers of Central Indiana at 317-262-TIPS. That's 317-262-8477. Or you can submit a tip digitally by going to their website, crimetips.org, or you can use the app P3. You can remain completely anonymous. We have a link to the Crime Stoppers website on our site, along with pictures of the knife released last year by the police. You can see all of that at redballpodcast.com. If you recognize the knife or you know anything, again, the Indiana State Police asks that you call Crime Stoppers at 317-262-TIPS or visit crimetips.org. Dalton said it best. It's time to bring closure to this crime. Thank you for listening to Red Ball. This series was written, produced, and hosted by me, with production assistance from David Flowers. Thank you to First Sergeant Bill Dalton and the Indiana State Police for their participation. Our theme music is Soldier by Fleury and Tommy Prophet. Red Ball is an Audio Chuck original. So Chuck, do you approve? <laughs>